So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Why do we insist on trying to push water uphill sometimes? I think it comes down to our conditioning. I think it comes down to our culture, which says that unless you're very busy, you're not very important. Whereas actually the reverse is true. That you only get really important by stopping being busy. And because you only have time to think when you stop being busy. And you only have time to do something unique and think about the formula for doing something unique when you're not very busy. And I take this Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got a hero of mine, Richard Koch. Richard, thanks for making time for this. It's a pleasure. So I've been a fan for a number of years. I bought copies of your books for so many CEO friends and clients, read them many, many times. You've you've got such an interesting background and career. When somebody asks you what you do, what's your answer? I say I invest and I write books. (laughs) And then that confuses them because they don't know what kind of investments I do and they don't know generally what kind of books they are as well. But anyway, that's what I say. But what I really think I do is think. And I know it's not a very popular thing to do. And I follow the dictum that my mentor, Bill Bain, always used to say, which don't let, let, don't let activity drive out thought. And so it's rather close to Warren Buffett's idea that you should be lazy and, and so on and so forth. But my ideal thing to do is to read a book think about it or read a very challenging paper, sit on my fish pond, preferably with some sun, not too much sun, but a little bit of sun, and and think and perhaps come up with a new idea. And my second, the second best thing for me is actually writing books. I don't agree with people who say that that they like having written a book but not actually writing it. I think writing is a great, great pleasure. At the end of the day, you've got something and you feel good about it. I feel good about it. I'm fairly uncritical of my own writing. The next day, I may go back and cringe. <laughs> but that's okay, because I got the enjoyment in the first day. And the second day, I can improve it. And I suppose the third thing I like to do is making money, which I think is so much easier than anybody ever thinks. And I try and make money with as little effort as possible. So that's, that's what I really do. But if I want to be boring, I say I'm an investor and I write books. <laughs> I love it. Well, you know, it's it's funny. Our listeners, you know, after almost 600 episodes here, they, they know about my obsession with audiobooks. I've, if you if you don't count like three or 400 books from the Jason Bourne genre, <laughs> just the like business and investing books, you know, I've done maybe like 850 books in the last dozen dozen years. And uh, it's amazing. Oh, thank you. And I I will say that you 
and Warren Buffett are the two most influential people in my business thinking. And I think it's fun how much you quote Warren Buffett. Even what you said right there, it just reminds me of a couple of things that he says. Like, you know, he says, it's not very hard to make money. All you need is eight hours a day to read and think. Yeah. And that's, that's not, amazing. that's not a popular thing that that's not one of his most famous quotes. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause it doesn't yeah. line up with the hard work. Everybody says you always need all the time. You know, the other one, he talks about writing his annual shareholder letter. And he said that nothing is more clarifying to him than having to write and, and to force himself to think hard enough to write clearly. He, he, you know, he repeatedly talks about it being an invaluable experience for himself. Yeah, I, I can uh, identify with that. I, for years and years and years since I've been an investor, I write an annual report, but nobody reads it except me. But I do go back and read these things. Every, every year I write about what happened. And I write about the most important companies and the most important decisions, whether they went right or wrong. And I do a little valuation of my assets. And I always write at the same time of year. I write at the end of the year. So, you know, this is kind of like after the Christmas celebrations. And, and then occasionally I go back and read these things. And I think, gosh, that seems such a long time ago. I'd, I'd entirely forgotten that. So anyway, I, I, I think, of course, Warren Buffett's letters to his stockholders are, are pure works of art. They are, they are brilliant. They are business books within themselves, really. And as for reading and thinking for eight hours a day, I, I don't read for eight hours a day, but I do, on average, probably read for two or, two or three hours a day. And I find that that informs my business decisions. It informs all elements of my life, actually. I, I think reading is, is vicarious experience, whether it's a novel or whether it's not fiction, non-fiction. It's, it's someone's encapsulation of life. And that, a slice of life is there in any book. And every time you read a book, you get some experience of someone's life. And usually they've organised it and it's been well edited and, and so on. So it's it's there. I mean, I think reading is probably one of the most um, wonderful things. And I know nowadays people do use audiobooks a lot. And I think that's fantastic because it enables them to get exercise and also to think at the same time. And the unconscious mind is exercised as well as the body. I think that's I think that's fantastic. Well, I, I really want to talk about some of my favorite books of yours. So we're going to talk about the newest one, Unreasonable Success, but the Star Principle, the 80-20 Principle, the 80-20 Principle, and 92 other laws. I forgot the whole title. I'm sorry. I love that book, though. And and I'll tell you, I was on a show recently, and somebody there's, – there's a book I'm actually uh, going to mail you a copy of called Hook Point, okay? And this Hi. this guy used to work for the film studios in Hollywood and then helped do social media for Katie Kirk and Taylor Swift and all these fancy people. But he has really distilled the 80-20 Principles of – how do you get somebody how do you get somebody's attention within 3 seconds so that they'll you have a chance of them finding about finding out about the rest of your content and uh, i read it four times in 2 weeks and somebody asked me what when's the last time you ever did that jess and i and i had to sit there and think i thought you know what it's is several hundred books ago and it's richard Koch's the 80 20 principle you're really the only other one that i've ever done that with it's just like it, it, I've been reading Warren Buffett for about five years by the time I got it. And it just crystallized. It just crystallized the larger vision of everything that I feel like he teaches and, and how it had transformed my thinking. And I'm obviously a big fanboy here. So why don't we do this? <laughs> no, keep it up. Keep it up, please. Well, it's, 
it's yeah, shout it from uh, rooftops, please. You know, I, I, listen, I, I ended up taking a break from finance because of some of my setbacks. And we're going to talk about setbacks here. And, and I ended up doing a short period in management consulting for the firm, the boutique firm that we had hired. And I got to, I got to advise Navy SEALs and CIA guys and the top sales manager for Microsoft globally and top salespeople at Oracle and nonprofits, all these, all these different folks. And, and, and since then, I've, I've slowed down on almost all that because we're so busy building a real estate fund, but I still have a handful of CEOs that, that I advise. And I consistently see them doing unnecessary work, doing, you know, doing the $10 work instead of the, you know, the $10 hours instead of the million dollar hours. And, and yeah. I just feel like it really is such an unfair advantage to just switch their thinking to what you teach. I mean, they can skip so many things in life, so much of the worst parts of their life. They can accomplish so much more faster. And, you know, for a $20 book to, to potentially open up millions, hundreds of millions. I mean, the, the opportunities are, are obviously pretty significant. And, you know, I'm going to let other people who are listening read your books and listen to your other podcasts that I've listened to. And I've got some of your YouTube videos on like saved playlists. Okay. And, and learn all about your time at BCG and, and going over to Bain and, and, and starting LEK and all the success and then using the star principle to, to massively grow your portfolio as an investor and create some really unequal results. If it's okay, I'd really like to dive into some of my questions about unreasonable success. Is that okay? Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. So my, my first thought is on, actually, can you give people just the quick elevator pitch on, on, on the book and, and these, you know, Bill Bain, Jeff Bezos, Winston Churchill, all these folks in it? Yeah, sure. What I did was to try and identify what makes people successful. What makes people outstandingly and unreasonably successful? And unreasonably means that they're more successful than they really deserve. And the, the whole idea is that I took 20 people who unquestionably have changed the world in some way, not necessarily for the better. There are one or two people in the book uh, that are somewhat of the dark side. Vladimir Lenin probably takes the prize for that. But people who definitely changed the world. And Lenin invented practical communism, like it or loathe it. That governed the world. It was the most important development in the world, probably for the next 70 years. It precipitated terrible things. It precipitated famine. It precipitated, in many ways, it precipitated Adolf Hitler, because Hitler imitated the one-party state, which had been invented by Lenin. And anyway, he definitely had a profound effect on, on the world. And the question is, why? Why were these people what I call unreasonably successful? And there are business people like Jeff Bezos in the book, the, uh, Steve Jobs is a favourite of mine as well. But there are artists such as uh, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci, and Bob Dylan, and I don't know if she's an artist or not, but Madonna's in the book as well. And uh, Otto von Bismarck, the most successful statesman of the 19th century, is in the book. And what I tried to do, Jess, was to say, are there any common attributes or common denominators amongst these people that they, they all had the same attributes? And I started with a list of about 50 possible reasons why people might be unreasonably successful. For example, one of them that's not in the book was taking high risks. I thought, because I like taking high risks, you know, it seemed reasonable to me that these very successful people should take high risks. And the answer was nine out of the 20 did. 
and 11 out of the 20 didn't. I mean, one of one of my mentors who's in the book, Bruce Henderson, who founded the Boston Consulting Group and therefore the methodology which I use for, for making money and making companies successful, never took a risk in his life, apart from the risk of being fired because he was such an awkward character that he uh, tended to to get fired. But so that didn't matter because he then went on and did, did something else. So I had this list just of 50 possible reasons and I went down them. And unless all of my 20 people encapsulated in some way each of the what I call landmarks, these reasons for unreasonable success, it went out the window. So basically I started with 50 attributes. Some of them are attitudes, some of them are experiences. One of them, for example, is uh, a transforming experience. And this, I think, is probably the only really original thing in the book, which is that when people have a transforming experience, it transforms them in the sense that they go into the experience as one person. The experience might last, the shortest one was four hours, the longest one was several years. But the experience then changes. And when they come out of that experience, they're a changed person. And I always quote the example of Jeff Bezos because it's such a good example. If he had not been hired by a company called D.E. Shore and Company, set up by a computer coffin called David Shaw, when he had worked on Wall Street and hated working on Wall Street, hated the people, hated the values, he was sent by a headhunter to say, well, there's this quantitative hedge fund. I don't really know what they do, but they're completely different. And they were completely different. David Shaw's company at the time was seated on top of a Marxist bookshop in the East Village, in Greenwich Village. So it wasn't your typical Wall Street company. People turned up in jeans and T-shirts and shorts and so on and so forth. But it was a remarkable company because David Shaw knew one thing, the internet, this was back in 1992, was going to be a great way to sell products. So he, and he put Bezos on the project he was working on to develop what they called the everything store. And the idea behind it is that they would sell everything via the internet. And they'd start with one particular product, which actually happened to be books. Uh, and so Bezos and, and David Shaw actually worked this thing out. And by the time that they'd finished, Jeff Bezos then said to David Shaw, I really want to do this on my own. I don't want to do it within the Shaw and Company. I think it's better to have a separate company. And David Shaw tried to persuade Jeff Bezos not to do it uh, outside, but to do it inside. But they went for a walk around Central Park. And after a couple of hours, David Shaw saw that he wasn't making any sort of impact on, on uh, Bezos. Bezos was determined to do this. And then he suddenly said, go and do it on your own. That's fine. And he didn't even ask for a share of the company. Incredible act of, of generosity. And that was Jeff Bezos's transforming experience. My transforming experience was working for Bain & Company where for the first time in my life, they actually uh, trusted me enough to make me a partner in the firm and to allow me to go and sell business the way that I wanted to do it and to operate it the way I wanted to do it. And that gave me so much more confidence after having been fired by the Boston Consulting Group that I absolutely adored and was still my model for what uh, a consulting firm should be like. But so anyway, that's another example of one of the landmarks that, that people did. So when I was writing the book, it was such a thrill to discover that there was always a transforming experience amongst the people that I'd identified. And I didn't look for the transforming experience first. I couldn't because there were nine different things that they had to, had to embody. And uh, so it was a very, very exciting thing to discover that there, there were the procedures or the experiences or the attitudes that 
these incredibly successful and undeservedly in some sense successful people did because the universe works that way yeah it, it's just one of the facts of life that if you want to be really successful it's incredibly useful another of the landmarks is to have setbacks you know without setbacks there is no unreasonable success the difference between these people is that they actually liked setbacks or somehow the setbacks energized them and that they were able therefore to move on to something better many people of course will have a setback and just be overwhelmed by it but these people could thrive on setbacks and identify that it's a very very nice conclusion because when you're in the depths of despair as i was in my late 20s because i tried to make bcg work you know i worked 80 hours a week you know i forgot about all the other priorities in life like exercise and my relationships and, and stuff like that because i really wanted to succeed and it still didn't work well you know that was an awful experience but if it hadn't been for that experience i would never have gone to meet bill bain and and seen how different the the same concepts could be when applied in a different way and the philosophy with bill bain espoused very similar to Warren Buffett in many ways, and very, very powerful. I mean, Bill Bain himself was one of the laziest people I've ever known in terms of business. I mean, he he worked probably, you know, it wasn't a four-hour work week, but it was it wasn't much more than that. And he but he got all these other people to work so incredibly hard for him, including Mitt Romney and a number of other people who were were absolutely stellar in what they did. But he somehow managed to get these people he he mentored them and he thought about the formula for business success and that was that was that was just wonderful so anyway i wanted to identify why people are unreasonably successful and i think i've done a pretty good job of that and the whole point of it is that these people who were unreasonably successful in a sense were very lucky because they didn't plan their transforming experience they didn't say oh i'd like to have a setback <laughs> and then and then go and find a setback you know they were selected as it were not by me but they were selected by as i say the universe really because it worked that way but the people who read the book can then think well for example if i haven't had have i had a transforming experience in my life have I gone into an organization or a company or had an experience of, of any kind which has totally changed me and made me at least 10 times and probably infinitely more effective and confident and able to do things and, and with a much bigger vision? You know, have I acquired very rare knowledge that nobody else has, essentially? And if not, then you put yourself in the position where perhaps you can have a transforming experience. And you think, well, what might that be? Might it be to go to a particular college or even a particular locality like Silicon Valley? Or, you know, you put yourself in the slipstream of the potential to have a transforming experience because you know that it's kind of like on the menu for, for uh, success. And that seemed to me that, that, that you could improve the odds of being very, very successful if you knew how it happened to other people were very, very, very outrageously successful. And again, one of my perennial themes through all of my books, all of my thinking, is the idea that it has to be easy. So, you know, you don't, you don't actually make progress the way that I tried to make progress in my late 1920s, sorry, in my late 20s, 
working for the Boston Consulting Group, working so hard and trying to do the heavy duty quantitative analysis, which is what they really placed the, the greatest premium on. Just they didn't actually try to impress their CEOs or their clients. They tried to impress each other. And the way that they tried to impress each other was by, you know, inventing clever matrices once they got the gross share matrix, you know, the dogs and the stars and question marks and cows. You know, everyone was trying to, to invent the next matrix. Unfortunately, the next matrix was never very interesting. And they were always trying to work out, you know, the very clever formulas. Like they had something called the sustainable growth rate, which tried to prove that the more money you borrowed, the more successful you were. And it was... It was nonsense, really. Although it was, it was, it kind of had a kernel of truth. But you know, they 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 tried to make it difficult. And you know, my evangelism is always towards saying, do what is easy for you. It might be very hard for other people, but do what is easy for you. And if you're not enjoying it, then stop doing it, because I believe that creativity comes from has a very close relationship a very high correlation and causation i think works both ways with enjoying doing it you know i mean albert einstein who's another guy in the book you know he was determined to investigate the the question about time and was time absolute or was time relative you know and his whole life when he was in his 20s was actually dedicated to this i mean he worked in a patent office for eight hours a day, I think five or six days a week. But he was always thinking about this particular issue and it gave him enormous enjoyment. If he hadn't really been absolutely fascinated by that and determined to crack it and enjoyed the process of investigating mysteries of the universe, then he wouldn't have done it. And likewise, you know, anyone who writes a great book, whether it's fiction or any other type of book, you know, but they enjoyed writing it. You know, it flows off the page. It's not boring. You know, the, the enthusiasm that they have shines through. And I think it's the same starting a business, you know, unless, you know, of course, starting a business, you know, it's not easy. It, it, you know, everything is not, you know, hunky-dory from day one. But unless you really want to do it, and unless it's yours, and it's in a way reflecting your personality, and Steve Jobs, again, is the absolutely quintessential uh, character in this that that he wanted to make fantastic insanely great products digital products of one sort or another and he wanted to prove that it was the end-to-end -end experience of the of the consumer of the user which he wanted to dictate so he wanted to be a dictator of what people had and he wasn't happy unless the product was near perfect or perfect. But in making that, you know, can you imagine the huge gratification that you, that he must have got the first time the iPod came out, the first time the Mac came out, the first time the iPad or the iPhone came out? You know, to him, they were works of art and they were intended to be incredibly useful, but incredibly simple, but, you know, incredibly difficult for everyone else, but not for him, because all he had to do was to say, well, this is what I want. He had a vision of what he wanted. He didn't know how to do it, but he persuaded people who were far, far better than him technically that they could do it, that they could create it. And that's another one of the landmarks is reality distortion. Reality distortion is just saying that current reality is X, like 
there isn't a Mac, there isn't a very easy to use computer. The early computers, as you know, were, were horribly complicated and not visual at all. You had to feed punch cards in and you had to go through all sorts of very peculiar instructions and all the rest of it. He made, he made all of that very simple. So, you know, it, it's got to be easy, it's got to be enjoyable, and it's got to have an insanely great belief that you can do what nobody else has ever done before. And reality distortion is just changing reality. You know, all it means is that people say it can't be done and somebody proves that it can be done. And that is that is distorting reality. It's being unbelievably ambitious, but it's also being unbelievably hedonistic in a way, you know, going for enjoyment, going for the, the things that really turn you on, because if they really turn you on and the objective is ridiculously ambitious, you know, you're going to have a great time. You're going to have a great time doing it and you're having a great time afterwards as well when you say, I, I've actually, I've solved a problem. I've actually come up with something which enables people to spend less effort but get more out of it. And that's the consistent theme through the 80-20 principle, unreasonable success, even the investment book, the star principle. It's got to be easy, but it's also got to be incredibly ambitious. Does that help a bit? I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. Well, no, no, it, it does. And I have a whole bunch of comments and questions. By the way, anybody who doesn't have this book yet, you know, go to audible.com, get your copy of Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It, or go to richardkosh.net. And it's his last name is K-O-C-H. Uh, go to richardkosh.net, click on the books tab, get your own copy. So if, if we could, I want to save some room to talk about the combination of the 80-20 principle and the star principle, some questions I've got for you about that. But maybe if we could go kind of quickly, I'd love to go through unreasonable success and either ask you questions of things I think I need to work on more or some thoughts of like, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm qualifying for some of these, that I've had some of these, whatever, and get your feedback on like, oh, I don't know if that one really fits, Jess. Is that okay? Yeah, perfect, yeah. Okay, so with self-belief, I really think about this. I mean, you talk about Churchill so much. I love Churchill. This idea, this this quote attributed to him of success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Can can you, let's say that I'm trying to increase my self-belief, but, you know, at 40, you know, I, I had two really profitable business ventures and about a dozen total catastrophes, right? And so it's very easy. Like, I've obviously got enough enthusiasm that I keep trying the next one, but then I do have that nagging, I have that nagging aspect of, of the negative self-talk or things that, that keep me from going to failure to failure with the level of enthusiasm I think Churchill's encouraging. I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on increasing self-belief. I think the self-doubt is actually very constructive. I mean, again, this is one of the themes in the book that, you know, someone like Steve Jobs had incredible success and incredible arrogance and, and, and confidence. But he also had this gnawing sense of insecurity from basically not being, not the home parents who were his natural parents. He was adopted. And his view was that because he was adopted, it means that he was abandoned, but it also means that he was special because, you know, his parents who took him on actually were, you know, great believers that he would do great things as well. And it's that combination of insecurity, which in a sense is the complete opposite of, of confidence. 
and the confidence itself, which I think propels people forward because it means that they want to express themselves. I mean, Jobs is a classic example of this. The guy, the guy really wanted to create great products and he wanted to great, create great products because that they were a reflection of him. He saw himself as being almost imminent within the product. And that for him was the answer to people who said, you know, you, you were abandoned, you know, you felt as though, you know, you weren't exactly how it was meant to be. You know, you were imperfect. You had this sense of insecurity and, and that can drive you on. So I think that the idea of having, you know, a, a number of failures or a number of you know, problems, it's very good. Because what self-doubt does, it says, well, let's close off the avenues which lead to self-doubt and then let's open up the avenues which lead to unreasonable success. So how do you, how do you uh, actually, your question, how do you actually increase your, your self-belief? If, if someone feels that they're, you know, they're sort of seven out of 10 for self-belief, but they haven't really cracked it. I think the only way to do that is to is to focus on what might the achievement be, which will then generate that. Because if you're good at doing something, that naturally increases your self-belief. So it's a matter of making sure that you only do the things that you feel you're preeminently suited to. And sometimes it takes a whole lifetime for someone to discover that. And but once they've discovered it, then of course self-belief happens because they achieve things and they achieve things because they're doing the things that they were put on the planet to do. And so, you know, I think it's partly a matter of, of having an outrageously ambitious objective. This is what I call a breakthrough achievement. And if you have an ambitious achievement and you get closer to it, then of course you're going to increase your self-confidence and your self-belief. So it's partly a matter of focus but it's focus on the things that A, you really want to do, and B, that you, you actually are really good at. And once you realise you're really good at something, you get better at it. And once you enjoy doing something, you get better at it because you want to do more of it. So it's, it's not being in the salt mines. It's not, you know, being like me at BCG, sort of redoubling your efforts. It's actually finding the thing which is your destiny, if you like. It's finding the thing that you can do incredibly well. And then the self-belief will come. The self-belief will be reinforced. But don't close off self-doubt because self-doubt tells you, for example, you know, I could never be a concert pianist. That's one thing I wanted to do when I was 16 years old. And my music teacher told me, you know, you're very good at playing a piano. You've got a distinction at grade eight, you know, very good but you're not good enough to be a concert pianist. You're not. So forget about it. <laughs> so I did, you know, it's, it's closing off avenues like working as a, as a uh, consultant at the Boston Consulting Group when you need to be very good at numbers. And I wasn't very good at numbers. It's closing off the avenue, which says that, you know, you should be running a particular firm. You might be quite good at running a particular firm, but unless it really excites it, and unless you are better than anybody else at running that particular firm, you shouldn't be running it. You should be finding someone else to it. So it's, you know, closing things down is very often the necessary precursor 
to opening up what is really right for you. And most of us go through life, and I, I've certainly done this as well. You know, most of us go through life doing things that other people have suggested that we do, or running firms for other people, doing something that is not totally ours, which is not something that excites us, which is not something original. And if you look at the people who are incredibly successful, they all have this originality and they have it in a, in a, in some ways, quite a conceited way because they know that only they can do it. Only they can write a book in this particular way, like JK Rowling, for example, inventing Harry Potter. You know, there were lots of people who wrote similar kinds of books, but hers were just so much better. And, so, and they captured the imagination of children throughout the world, you know. So she knew when she was sitting in a cafe, nursing a, a single coffee, because she couldn't afford uh, more than one coffee a day, in the cafe, nursing her young daughter as well, because she couldn't afford to pay for childcare and the rest of it. But she knew that this was going to be a fantastic success, that Harry Potter was going to work. And, you know, so she was an unmarried mother. She was someone who was on state benefits. You know, she was she was basically getting government, government money. And, and But she still knew that this was going to work. And that and that is why it did. So, you know, self-belief comes from doing what you already realise that you're quite good at doing and just focusing on it, I think. Does that answer the question or not? Yeah, I, I feel like the, the most amazing nugget for me in there is this idea of the value of the failures because what they have helped me shut off. And I don't know that I've, I've recognised that before. You know, my, my thought here... I. I would really be interested in your thoughts, especially about transforming experience and transform transforming experience and breakthrough achievement. And maybe I could just try to tell you my story and why I think I qualify for parts of the book and then have you like, you know, be my personal therapist for, for a minute and tell me what. So I think about Olympian expectations. I, I usually don't tell people this, but this is my one rare chance to talk to you. So I'm going to <laughs> at, at 20 years old, I read a book where I was listening to an audiobook and this guy who was a hero of mine from the 1830s told his mom he was going to be a millionaire by 30. And I figured that's 200 years ago so I could be a billionaire by 30. So I, I just randomly in my bedroom said, okay, I'm going to be a millionaire at 25, billionaire at 30. So I, I hit the first goal and, and totally missed the second goal and, and reset it now to, you know, at 65, I want to have 3 billion one for me, one for taxes, and one for our charity, Child Rescue. <laughs> okay. So I feel like those are, for me, those are high enough expectations. And I've, I've thought about bigger numbers than that, but that's kind of like the minimum milestone for me. And for my, my thought about transforming experience and breakthrough achievement, it's kind of two separate tracks. Like what feels like my breakthrough achievement that was also a transforming experience was at 24, I'd been trying all these businesses that I thought, hey, this is the kind of business that could get me to a million at 25 and they were all terrible and I didn't make any progress. And then I left Citigroup mergers and acquisitions and went and sold a private investment and was actually good at it and, and started making like a lot of money. Like, you know, I had a $115,000 commission check one week, you know, and I went from a negative net worth to, you know, stock price estimate of about $11 million in less than a year. And, and it just, the whole world changed for me. Like everything changed when that happened. And, and just what I thought was reasonable, you know, has completely changed for the last 15 years as a result. 
And and I was also the, another transforming experience for me, I feel like, and I don't know how to which one counts, but I when so I became a millionaire twice in my twenties, lost it all both times. And that's why it's third time I'm buying boring, reliable commercial real estate, Richard. So the first time I thought it was because I was trusting other people with the money. And I thought that that was the flaw. So the next time we started over from scratch and I became the CEO of the fund and we raised, it wasn't big. It was just a little first time fund, like $27 million. But, but when, after the 2008 crash and, and we were one of the casualties of that, I realized it wasn't us being the problem. It was that we were not using we were not using a solid enough framework for what we were putting the money into. We didn't do the star principle like you, or we didn't do the Warren Buffett style compound interest investing, which is why I've read 6,000 pages of his books since then. Right. And I have this simultaneous track of at like 21, I was in this big conference and this Baptist preacher guy was speaking at a business conference. I don't know why, but he said, God has a mission for you. And if you don't know what it is, it's probably the thing that makes you the angriest. And immediately thought, Oh, people who are, abusing kids for money in child trafficking, that, that makes me dangerous. That must be what God wants me to do. And I worked on it for a long time. And about nine years later, I'd actually finally started a charity and we saved our first kid from trafficking. And all of a sudden, like all these theories became real. And it was like, oh my gosh. And five years later, I went and, and something happened in Central America with at an aftercare facility. It was just like, so absurdly real. I was like, ah, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. Right. So to me, like I'm looking at, you know, I look at the 80, 20 principle and the star, the star principle. And I think if I'm going to follow Richard's advice and be in, you know, the, the star, the star business of a category that's growing more than 10%, maybe the best way to do this is to invent the category. And so I think, so I think, okay, look at how Red Bull doesn't just do content marketing. They have a for-profit media company that sells the sugar water. You know, Bloomberg makes over 95% of their money from selling terminals, but we all know them because of their media company. It's not just content marketing. It competes with real mainstream media. And there's a, there's a company out here in Utah called VidAngel. They're like a competitor to Netflix, but you can click editing buttons so your kids don't listen to swears or see nudity, stuff like this. Okay? Built a big audience, and now they're doing equity crowdfunding for their own movies and TV shows from their own audience. So my thought is, what if I could steal that model, but take it over here, build a media company that helps entrepreneurs become wealthier and the mean build trust and have the whole time saying, Hey, listen, if you need someplace for some boring, reliable income, we've got this great commercial real estate on the side. Right? So it's, you know, for me, it feels a little bit like learning from other people's success, but cutting a little bit of my own trail in a personal vehicle and, and hopefully have some unique intuition by pushing into media and just spending a decade studying Warren Buffett and compound interest investing and Howard Marks and Bruce Flatt from Brookfield and Oak Tree who follow his models. And, and at the same time, I think, yeah, but Jess, are you just trying to give yourself check marks where you really need to be pushing yourself a lot harder? So I know I kind of fire hose you there. What would your, what would any of your feedback be on all of that? Well, I think that's, that's very interesting. I mean, the idea of taking a model business model that's worked before and deploying it in a different context is one of the best ideas that's ever come up and it's not just an idea for business it's an idea for a social movement or a charity or or anything like that 
So, for example, self-service is in one of my other books, I talked about business genes and business genes is just a way of doing something which is incredibly effective. Usually it fits in with the 80-20 principle also because it does more with less. And one of the ideas like that is self-service. And self-service is, is a very old idea. I, I don't know quite whether it was invented by the, the people who built the pyramids in Egypt because they got the slaves to do the work for them. But, but you know, self-service was probably the most important idea in business or one of the most important business genes in the 20th century. So you see it, you know, with with cars, with service stations, as we call them in England, gas stations, I guess, yeah, in North America, you know, where people actually put their own fuel in the car. You know, it's a terribly simple idea. It's faster and actually people like that. You see it with supermarkets. And then you see it with something like McDonald's. You know, McDonald's actually invented the self-service restaurant. You know, maybe it wasn't the beef burgers, hamburgers, which were so important and the French fries, although they were obviously very important. Maybe it was the whole idea that you get rid of the waitresses because the coffee shop would have this huge menu. And, but basically you had to sit down and wait for the waitress to come to you. And if you wanted a coffee refill, you had to wait for the waitress to come to you. It could be very frustrating, particularly if you're in a hurry. And then you have to tip the waitress. So, you know, what Dick and Mac McDonald did was get rid of the waitresses and they made people line up for their, their food. And they even made them, you know, clear up after themselves as well. But, you know, because it was so much cheaper to do that, they did more with less. People could get a meal very quickly and they could get a very good meal because there was almost no choice that, you know, you had a hamburger or you had a cheeseburger and fries. And initially, you know, you, you could you could have a, a soda uh, and uh, you can have coffee and that was it in terms of in terms of drinks. So, you know, that's another example of, of self-service. You know, the the idea of taking something which works and applying it to a context where no one has used it before, I think is, is incredibly powerful. And then, you know, transforming experience. There are, I believe that there are themes in life. Like one of the themes in your life has been child trafficking and the evil of child, child trafficking and sexual abuse. Yeah. So, you know, you, you first had that idea when, the preacher said to you, you know, what makes you angry? And that, in a sense, gives you your mission. But you didn't actually do anything about it, as I understand. You know, you didn't actually set up your charity until quite a lot later, you know, maybe two decades later or something like that. Again, one of the themes in the 80-20 principle is that our view about time is really distorted because we think time sort of, you know, goes from left to right and, you know, particularly when you reach my sort of age, you begin to think, you know, everything's speeding up and you're going to be dead pretty soon. But, but actually, time isn't like that. I mean, when they invented the clock, they, they actually, the, you know, the, not a digital clock, but a proper clock with a face and hands that go around. What that says is that, you know, what time is it now? In, where I am in Portugal, it's 4.57. You know, I imagine that it's, a, you know, five hours earlier or a lot earlier as where you are. But... Whatever time it is, it will be that time again in 24 hours, precisely. And similarly, seasons and months of the year go by, but they come back again. And I believe that in life, that's, that's what happens, that, that, that the, the present 
is not just the present. The present is the product of the past. And the future is going to be the product of the past and, and the present. And so, you know, there's a little diagram in the 80-20 principle, which has got triangles. And the, the triangle, the smallest triangle is the past, and then the next triangle, which wraps around it, is the present. And then there's a triangle for the future. So I think anything that's really important that touches your soul, that is you know, something which you want to do, you're going to come back to sooner or later, and you're going to do it. And the reason that you've set up a child um, trafficking charity or anti-child trafficking charity is that you've got the money to do it. So, you know, you didn't have the money when you were 24 years old. So, so in a sense, the preacher was wasting his breath, except he wasn't because you remembered it, you know, and 20 years later, you could do, you could do something about it. It's all to do with the idea of unreasonable success because you're, 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 you're making your own trail. It's distinctive because it's something that you really care about. You are using a transforming experience and you're using a formula which has worked for other people and you're adapting it to your own particular psyche and your own particular ambitions and your own particular knowledge of a, an area where it could be used. So I don't think you should beat yourself up. The only thing I would say is that if it's not easy for you to do the next thing, then you shouldn't be doing it. You know, you should you, you, be incredibly ambitious, but be incredibly ambitious in a way there's a huge tailwind that's behind you. And, you. and you've experienced this, and I've experienced this in the last year as well. You know, suddenly everything becomes easy. You know, it's very difficult. It's like plodding through a minefield or, you know, a very muddy field and, you know, lift your legs up and they sink down further. And then suddenly you reach a road or you reach grass, which is easy to walk in. The experience of going through that is not wasted. You know, the experience of going, hitting your head against a brick wall, the experience of failure is actually incredibly functional. All you need to do is to realise it. And the, the tragedy with most people is that they never realise, they're never incredibly ambitious, they never think that they can do something that no one else has ever done before, and therefore they don't do it. But if you're, in, if you're like you, I mean, I think if you're incredibly ambitious and you try different things and you stop doing things, you know, many people do the same thing. I, I remember interviewing the, the head of my Oxford College because I thought that he might be a model of success and all the rest of it. Uh, not the current warden, they call it warden of water. It sounds like someone in charge of a prison, but, but actually they call <laughs> the head, the college head, a warden. Anyway, this guy was a, a natural historian. So he studied dinosaurs and all that sort of thing. And I asked him what he'd been doing, you know, for the last 16 years. And he'd been running a National History Museum in uh, South Kensington in London for the last 16 years. And I talked to him about what he was going to do next. And he said, well, I'm head of the college and, you know, that, that's, that's what I'm doing at the moment. It had no connection with what he'd done before. You know, there were no common themes. There were no dinosaurs in Oxford, <laughs> except some of the old dons, perhaps, the professors. And, you know, I thought, well, what a waste, because this man was incredibly talented, very, very bright, very dedicated, but he just wasn't ambitious. And so that was the missing ingredient. So I think, you, you, you know, people need to say, if, you know, if you're, if you're not very excited about what you're doing, why is it? What's the missing ingredient? And I think you've just got to get excited one way or another. 
But once you once you get have that excitement, things happen, don't they? Things happen because you're unconsciously looking for a way to solve a problem or a way to do something that no one else has done. And your whole mind all the time is on autopilot and is thinking about that. And then something comes along, you talk to someone and they say something and you think, that's it. You know, and then something else opens up, an opportunity that you could never have anticipated. And that, you know, it's like you gather, it's like there's someone pushing you from behind rather than, 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 than a headwind which is actually stopping you. And then unless you've experienced that, you just don't know how wonderful it is, but it's available to everyone. And it's been, I'm sure, would you agree that in parts of your life you've had the headwind and in parts of a life it's felt that, that they're pushing people from behind? And, and it's easy, but it's incredibly ambitious at the same time. Can you, can yeah. you think of- I, I do feel like, I feel like your books and your YouTube talks and, and stuff have been such a gift to me because, you know, I'm capable enough at a number of things that I hate doing which makes me worse at them. And then there's other things I'm not even that capable and I hate doing them, right? And I feel like it's by focusing, you know, your, your point about like, there's a vital few things that have almost all of the results. And then there's all this other stuff. And I'm paraphrasing, okay? But I feel like your works have given me so much permission to say that progress is going to made, get made. I'm going to achieve my goals. We're going to be able to help all these kids if I can continually pull back and back and back to the, the very, very tiny number of things that I'm uniquely set up to do that I was born to, you know, like there's a bunch of stuff I'm okay at. And then there's those couple things I was born to do, you know? And like, if I could stick to those, everything that R Richard teaches, everything that I see over and over, cause I see your principles now in everybody else's books and all over the place, these natural laws. Right. And so it gave me permission not only permission to stop, but also like the impetus of like, you pushed me to stop doing those things. And like, I think about Bill Bain, like he didn't do all the work, but he architected the work he wanted done. Bill Gates didn't do all the coding, but he architected the coding that he wanted done. You know, and I, I think about like, you know, a point, I think this is from find and drive your personal vehicle about adopting or opposing an, an external influence, having something to push against. And I think speculation, the people who confuse speculating versus investing. That's like such a passionate thing for me because I feel like I could have retired twice already if I'd understood that. Right. And then the other one is, as an entrepreneur, like the confusion between being self-employed and trading your hours for dollars versus architecting a system that will do the work, you know, the 80, 20 of architecture, like those are such lifelong passions to me that I can talk to them about them endlessly. I never, I never stop getting interested in them. I can always read more books about them. I never tire of them. And I think about your point from uh, the 80-20 principle and 92 other powerful laws of nature. And I wish I could remember the species of bird. But when you talked about, hey, if there's two birds that want to nest on the same part of the tree and they want to eat the same food, over time, one of those species is going to win out. Where if you can figure out how to nest in a different part of the tree... And you can figure out a different kind of food to eat. The two of you can coexist great. And, and so I think about this like, okay, if I'm going to follow the star principle and essentially invent our own category that we could be the star of, that it needs to be, by definition, it needs to be a different part of the tree that my competitors yes. are not in. And so yeah. my, my question for you is thinking about this idea of both inventing the different part of the tree you know, inventing the category to be a star of, and then maintaining stardom in that category, maintaining top spot category king there. 
I wonder if you have any principles or advice specifically about that challenge. Yes, I mean, the thing that you mentioned was, I think it was some embryo or some very, very small creature rather than a bird, but it's okay. exactly the right principle. But the, the point about it is you, you cannot possibly succeed if someone, someone or another species can invade you and you can't invade them. So basically, you, you have to be able to protect your area because it's uniquely yours. And that, that's, you know, that's true of abilities, but it's also true in business that, that, you know, a competitor who can enter your space, if you can't enter their space, that's not a situation that you want to be in. So you want to do something that other people either don't want to do or can't. Do. So that's very important. But at the heart of it is the thing that you were talking about before, Jess, which is, you know, stop doing things that you are not uniquely suited to do. And why do we not do that? Why do we not stop? Why do we insist on trying to push water uphill sometimes? I think it comes down to our conditioning. I think it comes down to our culture, which says that unless you're very busy, you're not very important. Whereas actually the reverse is true. That you only get really important by stopping being busy. And because you only have time to think when you stop being busy and you only have time to do something unique and think about the formula for doing something unique when you're not very busy and I take this to, to heart myself because I for the last month I've been doing something that I'm absolutely hopeless at doing uh, which is making a bid for another company so I own 60% of this company and I've been trying to, to persuade everyone else to, to let me own all of it and I failed you know and I it, I should not have started that because one of my skills is not persuading our shareholders to sell a, a you know part of the business that they own. So I should I should never and I've, it's it's been such a liberating thought in the last few days because it's coming to an end. It ends tomorrow and I'm going to fail. You know it's such a wonderful thing because because I shouldn't have started that. So now I know I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to concentrate on other things and. But we get we all fall into this trap. You know, I mean, so I write the books and you know give the speeches and all the rest of it. But you know, I'm susceptible to that as well because you know I I, I thought well this needs to be done, and therefore you know I'm the person that's trying to to, to buy it, and you know I, therefore what I should be doing is no I should have got someone else to do or I should not have done even started this exercise. But we all get into that because, you know, if you have a fallow period, you've, you finish an activity, very few people have got the self-discipline to say, well, I'll take a vacation or I will, you know, catch up on my reading or I'll catch up on, you know, going to meet people that I haven't seen for a long time. Or I'll just sit on my fish pond and think, <laughs> no, people have to be busy. And I, was, yeah. uh, I remember. I remember when I ran a company, when I was one of the three people started and, and running L.E.K., the whole currency of what people really worked for rather than money, although they got a lot of money as well, but what they really wanted was attention. And so did, have you not had this experience as a chief executive? You know, everyone wants your time and because it means they're important and it's, it's, a, it's a way of rewarding people and, and you're nothing wrong with rewarding people but what a trap what a trap that is for the person who's having to do it because because if they're in the office everyone wants to see them and then 
the opportunity <laughs> the job actually thinking is just not there. And this Bill Bain, he was very brilliant because he almost never went to the office. He had this massive, massive office, which was beautiful, and he never went there. He played tennis or he, he you know, he went to meet people or he, I don't know what else. <laughs> so I've listened to you tell these stories in my ear for years because I'm always listening to your books over and over. And I just, when I finished one, I start another one. And at, at any, no, at any given point, I do have one of your books going. Like I've always got at least one to three of your books downloaded on my phone and because I, I flop between books. And I think about that. And so my, my one attempt on that this time is I didn't make myself the CEO of the real estate fund. I hired a guy who's bought $2 billion worth of buildings and he's done it for 18 years and he's the CEO and he's going to have to sit in the office. And I made myself the chairman so that I don't have to go to the office because I, I hear you say this stuff all the time. And I think, yeah, if I go to the office, everybody's going to want to talk to me and I want to go to the office. I want to encourage people. I want to be there, but I, I want that to, I want that to be on my terms so that I can mostly focus on exactly what you're telling me to focus on, you know, a total tangent. And I, I could talk to you for another five hours, but you don't, but I, I'm going to respect your time instead. Total tangent, but something really interesting to me is, again, just having read so many books and yet, you know, your books I come back to over and over and I've read the 80-20 principle, you know, I mean, well over 10 times start to finish, but just many more times than that because I'm listening to part of a chapter at a time here and there. And I'm fascinated to think because you, you are so thorough in your thinking, how do you choose what to cut from your books. Well, it so happens I'm producing a new edition of the 80-20 principle, and I have exactly that, <laughs> that dilemma. And I think, you know, the, the thing about a book, Jess, is that is that you're actually allowed to have highways and byways. You know, you're actually allowed to digress. And some of the digressions, they're not absolutely, you know, you could you could skip them. But in a way, they make the thing more interesting. If it's too concentrated, then I think it sort of loses some of its power. I mean, many people have observed that, you know, that, uh, there are loads of reviews on Amazon, lots of very nice reviews about the age of change principle. But if it's, a, if it's a critical review, they always say, you know, just read 20% of this book and it's all repetitious and, 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 and all the rest of it. Well, I'm going through that process now. I don't think that's true. So the most difficult thing, I can always add new material, the most difficult thing is actually cutting it out. And isn't that ironic? Because that's against my principle. But in a way it isn't. I mean, the 80-20 principle is not about cutting corners. The 80-20 principle is about achieving things with relatively little resource. It's getting great results without you know, too much effort or too much uh, time or too much money or you know, too much anything really. So, you know, if you cut out the things which really inspire you, the things that are really enjoyable, then, you know, you end up as, well, not very successful because, because the spirit's not there. So, yeah, I mean, I think the answer, the answer is that concentrate on the results and, and the effort that goes into it. Don't, don't judge by external things which are relatively unimportant like you know my agent says every book has a natural length and that's true you know sometimes i write like star principles a very short book that's packed full of examples 
and it's got one theme, <laughs> as they all have, you know, but it's an incredibly powerful theme. Not that I invented it, but I have used it, you know, and I know that it works, and therefore other people can use it and work. They don't have to be very clever. I don't have to be very clever. You know, it's, you know, it's the power of the concept. So, you know, I think how to cut things out. I, in a sense, if you're enjoying life, you don't want to cut things out. But, you know, life is composed of different segments, isn't it? Life is composed of the things that you want to achieve. And it's also composed of the things that you enjoy. Not everything that you want to achieve is enjoyable. And not everything you enjoy is going to be a great achievement. So you know when it's right for you. You know, you know when to stop reading. You know when to stop writing. You, you, you know, it's, it's natural. And so, you know, the, the thing which if I could just close on this, the thing which we all have to keep thinking about is how can I do something fantastic with no angst, you know, no anxiety at all, no unpleasant experience, and relatively little resource. What can I do, you know, but it's got to be something great. So there's no point in trying to do so. When, when, if you're doing something and it's not great, stop. Get someone else to do it or don't do it at all. And that's really where I want to end because, you know, the, the easiest way, I mean, another of Bill Bain's dicta to end with is the best way to start making money is to stop losing money. And he applied that to companies because so often companies had lots of products and lots of activities, which were, if you, if you looked at them uh, completely rationally, they were loss-making, you know, and everything we do in life has a cost in terms of time because we're not going to live forever everything that we do in life has got a cost because it involves other people and other people's effort even just listening to us or you know <laughs> so you know that is something which you've got to say is this something which is a real a really profitable activity in terms of enjoyment or in terms of money or whatever and if it isn't cut it out because we know that most of life is waste and if you want to have a really effective and wonderful life and achieve things, you don't need more time. You just need to stop doing things. And there I must stop doing this because I see we've run over our hour and I must go and run off to an next appointment. Jess, it's been a terrific pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. And yeah. thank you for your I've never known anyone so enthusiastic about my work. And it's, uh, it's a great, it's a great uh, trip. <laughs> Thank you so much. You bet. Well, listen, you're you're invited back on anytime you want. Every time you have a new book come out, let's get you some more PR for it. And I appreciate all the time today. Oh, I will, I will definitely do that. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Goodbye now. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.